0: Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everyone. This is Shannon and Kathy with Terror
1: Talk. Good morning, Kathy. Hi. How are you?
0: Hello, I am, um, we today are, I'm pretty excited for this, we're going to deep dive into Lizzie Borden, uh, led by our, by our illustrious Dr. Kathy, Bates. we're going to talk, talk about it this week and next week, so it's a two-parter, um, and with that, I'll
1: give it over to Kathy. Okay, so Lizzie Borden, um, there's so many... Nursery, not nursery rhymes. That would be creepy. There's so many <laughs> rhymes <laughs> and stories <Amen. laughs> and urban legends and hauntings, and a lot of people have heard the name Lizzie Borden. I think most people will be like, "Oh yeah, I, I, I think I know who that is," or "That's the one with the axe, right?" And you know, murdered her, her parents and all. This. So there's a lot of uh, information and misinformation about Lizzie Borden, but she was notoriously known for um, being tried. she was arrested and tried for murdering her father and stepmother in late 1800s 1892 i believe the year was um in fall massachusetts and yes there was an axe involved which becomes a very big part of the trial and basically they were murdered in their own home uh one morning and all of the evidence sort of pointed to lizzie however well, um, and I'm not really giving anything away because you can look this up and most people know that she was acquitted and she was um, she was not found guilty and surprisingly enough I think if we this trial happened now most people would be like burn her or you know, throw her in prison she's awful but at that time there was a a huge amount of relief around that because I think at that time no one really thought a woman of such stature could ever commit a crime like this so I feel like and when we talk about the trial next week I'll get into some of the the gender stereotypes and the political and social climate we'll talk a little bit about that today I just think that it would have been a very different trial today
0: um, yeah, in some ways it's, it's in some ways it's surprising that they even arrested her for the time yes
1: you know? absolutely and that's where I think there was you know everyone in this town, um, went to that trial. This was a very small town. They ended up having to move the trial to a different area. They needed more space and everyone involved in the town, um, whether they wanted her arrested or not, were there. Uh, many people were there to support her and really this incredible case. So let's get into it. So she, her name is Lizzie Andrew Borden. So she, her middle name, she's actually named after her father, which is interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah she was born um july 19th 1860 and she died on june 1st 1927 so she was born in fall river massachusetts small town um to andrew jackson borden a wealthy and successful property developer although he was not always wealthy and i'll talk about that um and sarah borden her biological mother and sarah died Shortly after her birth, which really, as from a psychological and developmental standpoint, I think you and I both can say that a lot of um, problems can develop when someone loses a a parent that young. And so, you know, after she died, well, she first she died of uh, uterine congestion and disease of the spine. I mean, these are things that we don't even really hear of people getting sick or dying of anymore. so it was noted that Lizzie, who was christened with her father's name, was was actually very close to her father growing up, very very close with him. And that plays another part in the trial later too. Uh, their relationship and how they and could she have actually murdered him? You know, he was wearing the ring she gave him on the day that he died, and all. This. So she was, she was christened with his name, very close yeah. to him. So he. He just was a successful investor, He, but he he grew up, Andrew grew up very wealthy, but he went through a period of time where he actually did not have a lot of money at all. Um, but he invested in, in banks, cotton farms, real estate. He actually sold eggs from a basket to his business associates. He was always doing something. So self-made? Yeah, self-made. Um, and But he was this notable penny pincher. So despite his considerable wealth, they lived in a very small home compared to what they could have actually afforded. Um, So they never installed any running water. And Lizzie actually grew up with a slop pail, which is like a bedpan and a chamber pot, which is a portable toilet. So she had both, I guess. Well, maybe and it wasn't that unique for that time or just for the- that was, actually, that was actually very unique at that time because by that time, everyone, most people had running water. Oh, okay, okay. And I, I had to look that up because I, that was my initial reaction too was, um, well, most people did, but I guess the area that they lived in, in fall, was a neighborhood next to a much wealthier neighborhood where- her father's brother lived a different there's a couple brothers and we'll get into the family and she was always very jealous of her extended family because they actually were able to show their money and Andrew never did he he was a penny pincher and he lived in a very it was very humble upbringing i guess and there was a lot of resentment about how Andrew spent his money and the portable toilet all of that stuff will also play a part in the trial later. So despite growing up in a wealthy family, he was actually financially unsuccessful in his youth. And I think that that's probably what happened is he went through a a period where he did not have money and he probably learned how to save or maybe even become obsessed with money for the fear that one day it, it could just be gone. And I think anyone who's been through either something like a depression or they've lost significant amounts of money. They become a little bit um, conservative or even paranoid sometimes about money, and I think that's probably what happened. So um, he eventually started to do really well. He started selling furniture and caskets, and then he led to success in real estate. But um, his frugality carried over into his business dealings, which was not a good thing. He had a lot of enemies, and towards towards the day of the murder lizzie i'll talk about this in a moment she expressed fear um that someone that he would do business dealing like there eventually he's someone's gonna hurt him because he was that frugal and and cut so many corners um so kind of go backwards here for a minute two years after lizzie's biological mother died andrew remarries a woman by the name of abby Durfee gray she was a spinster. She had never been married. And they all lived together, all meaning Lizzie, her sister, Emma, mom, I'm sorry, stepmom and dad, all lived in this bungalow in Fall River. So this was Abby's first marriage. She was a spinster. It's, the way they paint it, it's like Andrew needed a wife. She needed to be married off. So it was almost like an arranged marriage. Like a business transaction? Sort of like a business transaction. And to get her out of her family home. Sure. Um, yeah so Lizzie and Emma were not really excited about this um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so Lizzie and her sister Emma were, were pretty close they had an orthodox and religious upbringing you know they regularly attended central congregational church she taught Sunday school um, she was very involved in church activities when she was a young woman and she was actively involved in Christian organizations like the Christian Endeavor Society and the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So I'm sharing all this stuff only because, again, when she's arrested for her father's murder, there's a lot of naivete at that time around. If, if you presented a certain way, there's no possible way that you could be dangerous. You know, she's this young yeah. Christian woman, and they paint her to be very young, even though she wasn't. She was actually in her 30s. <laughs> When she oh, wow. she was in her thirties when she murdered um well allegedly when she had murdered her father and stepmother, but I think what happened is at that time, if you weren't married by a certain age, you were sort of treated like a child, you're still living at home, so they painted this youthfulness about her, but she was really not all that young. I did not know that i th- I was thought that she was very young because of the way that they had okay. painted it like you know twenty or something exactly. So, and I think in the, in the next episode, I'll give you the exact age she was when all that happened. Um, So, so yeah, so very, very conservative Christian upbringing to the point of almost like oppressed. And, um, you know, the press and even some of the literature point to Lizzie being a recluse, but she was actually really social and popular So the way that they painted her heightens the suspicion as the perpetrator, right? When we think of people who are, um, I don't know, the profile of someone who could do something like that, oftentimes as someone who's more reclusive, uh, isolates, uh, but she was actually, I'm sorry, what'd you say, Shannon?
0: There's a stereotype. Mm -hmm.
1: But she was actually really quite social and popular, um, but it was rumored that her own father was the one who repressed her. So she actually wanted to be involved with a lot more outside of church and, you know, more with like the normal, quote unquote, social activities that a a girl her age would want to be involved in, Um, social activities, outing with her peers. But I think her father was very strict about what she was able to do. Um, So around this time, so now we're looking at, you know, Andrew and, and... Abby had been married for some time now because it was only two years after Sarah was born. Lizzie's older sister, Emma, um, was the first one who really did not accept Abby. Um, did not... She was older, right? Yes, yeah, she was older. Yeah, she did not accept her new stepmother. And she would actually refer to her disrespectfully, especially at that time, as Abby. She was the first one who who did not call her mother... She called her Abby. And so the tension soon transferred itself to Lizzie and Lizzie um, started to call her Abby as well. So she had been quoted to describe Abby as a mean, good for nothing. They really couldn't stand her. Mean, good for nothing, right? I mean, someone says that now, it's like, ooh, yeah, that's harsh. Um, <laughs> but at that time, that, I guess it was. And so neither one of the daughters really respected or ever really welcomed Abby into the house. And there was a lot of tension. A lot of tension in the home. And it started with, first of all, you know, dad remarrying this woman who they didn't like. But then Andrew had a lot of real estate and money. And when it really turned, when the girls really turned on Abby was after Andrew transferred real estate and ownership of their home to Abby and not the girls. Yeah. Right. So now they're watching their inheritance sort of fizzle away. And so Lizzie and her her sister were extremely resentful of this because Mm -hmm. they wanted, they're like, okay, so you're going to give, you're going to give her this property. That's supposed to be our home. uh, This was be ours. Where, where's our property? They want a property of their own. So Andrew Mm -hmm. agrees and he gives each daughter's, uh, each, each one of the daughters a $1,500 house. And they're like, okay. But this situation starts to fester because they start to see that Andrew's giving Abby a lot of what would have been their assets. And yeah. the more that Andrew gives to Abby, um, Lizzie's now aware that it's being subtracted from her inheritance.
0: It's, isn't it amazing how that just can ruin relationships? Yeah. You know? Like money, material is- belongings, families property you know it just and, and we think it's about the material goods you know it comes off like it's like well I want mine and all this but I think it's also based in an emotional place where 100% you know especially with a father who prizes material belongings and everything and has built all of this wealth and it's like, that's what he has to give. Like, that's how he could love you. And then he's giving it all to her and not to them. Like, I could see how that
1: emotional resentment would build. Too. Yeah. Like you said, it's bigger than just the property. It's you're, you're choosing to give, you know, you've worked so hard for all of this and you're giving it to this woman. And yeah. we like. Lo- Knowing she's not going to give it to the girls. Exactly. If she dies. Because if, exactly. Because if he dies, well, and this, this is, this is the tricky part too if he dies first, they get everything. And that will play a a part. So um, yes, all all this resentment's building up. It's almost like dad can't do enough to make it right, especially after giving Abby their home. So after a while, after they've already referred to her as Abby, they actually, the, the daughters then start to begin to refer to her as Mrs. Borden. And they start to mm. refuse to participate in any family dinners, gatherings. They're like, F you, we are now out. Yeah. So Abby's living in this very tense space. And the way that the, the people in the community described the Bordens is you never heard an argument. You never visually saw any tension. They were very good at keeping everything within the house. So imagine if you're keeping that much tension in the walls and not showing anything at church or anywhere in the community, how much tension is held in the house. You know, that's the container for all that garbage.
0: Yeah. powder keg. It's a powder
1: keg. It's a powder keg. So, um, you know, and I think in that time, everything was really about what it looks like. So they had to keep their shit together despite the fact that they figuratively and maybe literally wanted to kill her. Yeah, it's
0: like a stoic family, right? Exactly. Yeah, they just, and it sounds like they did a really good job of keeping everything in the house.
1: Yeah, they did. So, so it even gets <laughs> within the house, it gets even worse. So, in 18, 1891, so the year before the murder, Andrew and Abby start a police investigation in their own home after jewelry stolen from their bedroom. Okay, Okay, so documents actually suggest, I'm not assuming police documents, that it was obvious Lizzie was the culprit. And the Hmm. police investigation was to simply to go through the motives, or to the motions, excuse me, go through the motions. Andrew, uh, bring the police in. I would assume it's because if he brings the police in, then it doesn't look like an inside job. Again, what does it look like to everybody in the community? If they bring the police in, then it looks like someone broke into the home. Right, it's all about appearances. It's all right? about appearances, but Andrew, I guess, cuts the police investigation super short because he knows it's his daughter. So after this occurs, everyone in the house begins buying locks. And they lock up every room. They all have their own locks and the whole every room has uh every door has a lock. And it becomes a house of separate rooms. So how ironic and metaphorical is that? Everyone is now separated. Um, But, again, maintaining on the outside that the house is clearly, uh, you know, maintaining on the outside, but clearly divided on the inside, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: Right. You were talking earlier about how, you know, a lot of times people with this kind of psychological makeup or whatever, people that are put on trial for murder have the sort of isolated tendencies, all of that. It just strikes me that in the day and time, she might have had those tendencies, but just culturally and socially... That was they were like as a family they were just not hurt individually
1: right yes I mean, as a family, absolutely a, and, and i think that when we, the film really portrays that and and the documents really portray that i think lizzie wanted to be out and doing more but he andrew kept them all very oppressed and kept them all like really in each other's face and hating each other he was very controlling And, um, you know, just like in any family, when the kids start to get older, they, they start to realize what's been happening to them. And now Lizzie and her sister, are they're pissed, they're angry. And so this happens. So they put all these locks on the door and the people, um, you know, again, in, in the community are like, we never knew any of this was happening. And, um, you also have, which I forgot to mention, and this will, this will be a part of the trial as well. Is not only is it Andrew, Abby, um, Emma, mm-hmm. and Lizzie, but their maid Bridget Sullivan, who lived oh, wow. in, in the house as well. They're all. This is their domestic servant, um, all living in the house. So Bridget is living with this crazy family, imagine. And apparently she was very oppressed as well and controlled by Andrew as well. So you have five people residing in a home like this. That wasn't very large. Um, So it got so bad that Lizzie actually pushed a writing desk up against the wall. So dad couldn't get into one of the doors because I believe that her bedroom had two doors one was actually connected to Andrew and Emmy's, uh, Andrew and um, Abby's room. And then she had her own door. But she even starts to now lock herself in or out, depending on how you're looking at it. Right. And then Andrew, I mean, so much passive aggression. Andrew leaves a spare key to his door on the front table entrance by the front door as a dare and temptation for Lizzie to steal it. So all of this stuff, no one's saying anything, but it's almost like, you know it reminded me of? The game of Clue. Oh, right. All the rooms. All the rooms. (laughs) There's silent, all the silent, weird stuff happening. And the pot just continues to boil and boil and boil and boil. Yeah, that tension. Mm -hmm. So this is, sort of wanted to set you guys up for, this is everything leading up to days before the murder right so we
0: have like a family in just not talk not talking to each other totally at odds tons of resentment and then they're also not like taking it outside of the house so it's just building and building there's no you know how sometimes we need an outside perspective on a problem in order to sort it out they're not getting any nope. of that <laughs> no
1: andrew's running so all, all of this all of this
0: right so i think that that's where we're going to take our first break Uh, We'll we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back and continue with the story. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show.
1: Okay, so as we uh, continue to move on here with the story, (laughs) believe it or not, it starts to get weirder. Um, First part, I just wanted to give you all this introduction to her life and paint a picture um, around, you know, how she grew up. And I think it's clear that there's a lot of oppression. There's a lot of rigidity. There's a lot of secrets. There's a lot of passive aggression. So now we're, we're back in 1892, which is the, the year that um, Andrew and Abby are murdered. And it's the summertime. And Lizzie's actually with some friends at a beach house on Buzzards Bay at, mm-hmm. um, in Massachusetts. It's on the Massachusetts coast. Mm-hmm. And so while she, this is where th- start, the, and this, this ends up getting thrown out in the trial, which I think is so interesting. She tries to buy mm-hmm. prussic acid And if you don't know what prussic acid is, it's hydrogen cyanide. Um, And she she tries to get this from a pharmacy. And at this time, the only person, people who can really buy this are doctors. Um, Some people used to buy it to put down stray cats in their neighborhood. And so they ask at the pharmacy, you know, what do you need this for? And she claimed that she wanted to use it to kill bugs that had infested a sealskin cape her father had bought for her. So there okay. were bug- I don't know how bugs get <laughs> so stuck in a sealskin cape, but she said, you know, and I think the pharmacist was like, that's what you're going, like just a little bit of this could take somebody out. Like you have to be extremely careful when you use it. And it's only usually used by professionals. Um, so clearly it, in, in midsummer, it's going to attract attention. And right. she's denied, you know, the the druggist told her that the poison would be available only with a doctor's prescription. And so she was turned away. And I can't remember if she tried to buy it at one or two different places. But apparently this was a a big like flag. Who is you know, there are other ways to get these bugs out. And why would you even. Um, mess with something like prussic acid. But they only found that out during the investigation, I right? believe so, yeah. Okay. So, um, back in Fall River, Lizzie receives news that her father, so while this is happening, she, she receives news that her father has transferred another substantial property to Abby. Jeez. And John Morse, who is her uncle, on her biological mother's side. So John Morse okay. is her mother's brother, um, so he's he's assigned to be the caretaker of the home because clearly Abby's living at their home. So he right. he assigns another property to Abby. John Morse moves in, takes care of the home. So John Morse now starts to be, to come around more, and he you know probably going well. I'm going to capitalize on on Andrew's money here. So Lizzie then informs a friend by the name of Alice Russell, who I believe testifies in the trial as well about her father's ruthless business ways. So she starts talking to Alice about her how her father doesn't handle business well and that she has this deep intuition that something terrible is about to happen to him. Mm. So now we're getting, now Lizzie's back. Um, they're all back from the, I think, I think Emma may have been on that trip as well. But now they're all back in the house. And on August 3rd, mm-hmm. several members of the household, including Lizzie, become ill That on the evening of August 3rd. And Andrew starts to raise some concerns that someone might be out to poison them. So this is sort of in, li- in line with... Yeah lizzie's suspicion that someone may want to harm him why else would you be paranoid that somebody out uh, is trying to poison you
0: right unless you're a criminal mastermind and you're just planting these seeds along the way right mm-hmm. <laughs> right which you know is possible i know they didn't think that of her but but it, it'd be
1: interesting that yeah that andrew would say you know someone's out to get me
0: yeah, no, I so, know. Uh, but yeah, she very well. Paranoia, have... but also the isolation of the family and
1: everything. Like, I can see how people would become paranoid that's over true. time. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, and he seemed like a very controlling guy, and controlling people tend to be sure. paranoid. So, um, so anyway, Andrew, you know, starts to raise these concerns. So, the, you know, they're all puking their guts out that evening. Then they sit Mine. down; they all sit down for breakfast the next morning, including John Morse. So John Morse stays the stays the night there. And Mm -hmm. I I believe he was also initially a suspect, but he had an alibi because after breakfast, John and Andrew depart, they go there separate John leaves the house. So this is the morning now of August fourth. Okay, Andrew returns about 1040am for an early lunch. Shortly after that, Maggie, who's the maid, and she's she's been outside cleaning all the windows here's lizzie yelling maggie come quick father's dead someone came in and killed him so again going over this trajectory food poisoning the night of august 3rd this is now after lizzie gets back from trying to purchase the prussic acid
0: yeah that's what i'm sort of thinking like there's an assumption when we're listening to this there's an assumption that Maybe she got the acid from some other place that was never found out, and that she started like poisoning the family.
1: Possibly, because that's although what they're all puking I think,
0: it, I mean, that's like one assumption. One could right,
1: make. although when I did a little bit of research on prussic acid, even a little bit can just kill you. So I don't think she oh, okay. would know. Not a slow burn. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't okay. think you. It's not like um, cyanide, like rat poisoning, that we like see on forensic files, where someone could put it in a little bit at a time to gaslight someone. You right. know, I think this stuff is. I guess like, we could
0: theorize that. I guess we could theorize that she found something else to poison them absolutely. with that was more slowly. I mean, you know, if we're just going with theories. Yes,
1: she may have found something else to put in their food, not necessarily to take them out, but to get them very sick.
0: Right. It's just a narrative that it sounds like maybe the police were following.
1: Sure. A little, because you know? yeah, it definitely be, plays a part. Um. So, so Andrew. Okay. So Andrew is now found dead, and um remember like i said if i think it's if andrew died i'll get into the inheritance thing sorry i don't want to I, yeah he I don't does. want to digress here so father's dead someone came in and killed him this is the first thing maggie hears this on august 4th 1892 same morning andrew's dead mm-hmm. they find his wife abby gray murdered in their home between 9 a.m and 11 a.m Andrew had been hit 11 times with a sharp object. His face Mm. and head were mangled beyond recognition. And he had actually, the ax actually came down and split his tooth in half. I mean, it was really, the way that described it's very graphic. His eye, one eye and one tooth completely split in half. Can't recognize his face. Mm -hmm. And then a neighbor actually finds the body of Abby who was found in an upstairs bedroom suffering from similar wounds and she was killed first. She killed. so the girls aren't home. Well Lizzie was and she has an alibi but it's not great. Okay. So yeah that so that morning the only thing that Andrew knows the reason so Andrew comes home he's like you know where where's Abby? And Lizzie says oh she received this note um, a friend was ill. She she went out to the city to to, to check on her. And okay. So Abby wasn't there at all. So okay. Abby was not. Well, so she says no one ever found this note. No one ever knew who this ill friend was. But what it does is it, it doesn't let Andrew look for Abby because he assumes she's gone. So when he comes Great. home that day, she's actually already dead. He asks mm. Lizzie. Whereas Abby, oh, she went out this morning. She got a letter, you know. To do I that. see. So the court is basically saying that was a ruse. So Andrew wasn't looking for Abby and didn't worry about her whereabouts because she was already dead. Okay. Okay. So um, the police. Here's another thing: the police don't find any forced entry because um, Lizzie is in the house. So they suspect that Lizzie's the one who did it. There's no forced entry. Lizzie said she was in the barn behind the house looking for fishing sinkers for a planned fishing trip. Yeah, I wasn't even Mm -hmm. wrong. I was in the back, you know, looking for these sinkers. She did not (laughs) have any blood on her at all. The film depicts this, and even the trial brings up the idea that she actually may have killed both of them in the nude. Right. Um, So initially, the investigators believe... It's now kind of flash back to Andrew potentially having someone who is against him. Mm -hmm. They had witnessed a man standing outside of their house a few days leading up to the murder, and the the investigators believed initially that a Portuguese-born laborer who had argued with Mister Borden over payment for a job, and had actually visited the Borden house on the morning of the murders, but. Mm-hmm. They ended up ruling him out as a suspect. So initially they thought it was someone that was doing business, just like um, um, Lizzie had tried to state, you know.
0: Well, and that goes with the class system too. Exactly. You know, like a laborer, a laborer is easier He's to He's going to be primal.
1: Than, uh, He's going to be, yes. female. yeah, exactly. Yeah. However, in front of the grand jury, it's found that three days after the murder, she had actually burned the blue dress she was wearing the morning of the murder. But her excuse was that it had paint on it and therefore she had burned it. That's a little convenient. So this is actually what made her the prime suspect was this dress. Yeah, that's suspicious. So obviously they actually believed it's covered in blood and that the only way, um, you know, she could get rid of all the evidences by burning it, using an excuse that there's paint on it. So she would be the only one in the house who would know about the whereabouts of her family that day. She was the only one that was there, the only one that could have done what she did and knew sort of the regimented schedule of where everybody would be, expecting dad to come home for lunch, Abby's upstairs, changing sheets on a bed. She just knew too much.
0: And the sister wasn't there. the sister was not there.
1: So, on August 11th, 1892, so a week after the trial—I mean, excuse me—the week after the murder, Lizzie Borden's arrested and jailed on charges of killing her father and stepmother. The grand jury begins in early November, and on December 2nd, Borden is indicted. Her trial starts on June 5th in 1893. So she stays in, in oh, almost a full year. She's later. in jail. <laughs> she is in prison just like today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, so the trials then moved to New Bedford and it ends on June 20th, 1893. So actually fairly short trial considering how long she was in prison. She's acquitted, but remains the prime suspect. So there's other suspects, although no one was actually ever found guilty of these murders. And it became um, a landmark case in U.S. legal history. And the murders have been fictionalized and speculated about ever since. So they never really oh, found yeah. who did it. She was, she was acquitted, but there was nothing. Uh, I guess what it came down to is they said, There's, if it isn't her, then who?
0: Right. What? Are, who are the other suspects? I was wondering, and I know we'll get to this in the trial, but it's like, I'm, I'm like, one of the reasons why she might have been acquitted is because there were other suspects, right? Like reasonable doubt. But
1: What ends up happening, without going into too much detail, is they, um and, and I, I really can't wait for the, the trial piece because I, I actually go into, like, why didn't they, they don't even bring up the idea of insanity or anything, which one of the first cases of insanity was a couple of years before her trial so what happens in the trial is they really focus on her gender and they really okay. focus on how someone of her upbringing and stature and gender um this is just not possible and okay yes all perception yeah yeah so um so yeah so this you know has become okay. this incredibly popular trial so according to um so sorry so now We have this woman who has been acquitted. We have this whole story. We don't have an answer. So nothing better than a great ghost story to come Mm, out of something like this. There's poems uh, after, you know, the axes and the 40 wax and all this stuff. Everyone knows something about Lizzie Borden. I don't think they know this whole story. So the home, her home is still... There and the woman, a woman by the name of Martha Mc- McGinn, I think her name is, owns the home, and it's a bed and breakfast. Oh yeah, and and people stay in the room where she killed Abby. <laughs> how contemporary! And, the, and huh? she says the room where Lizzie's stepmother Abby Borden was found and murdered is the most popular rental in the house. Yeah, we're all a bunch of sick. We're weirdos, a bunch of sick we? weirdos. That's why we do these <laughs> podcasts. And yeah. that's
0: right. We're just, you know. This is why this kind of thing is interesting, and we're just we're fascinated by the dark side
1: so after the turn of the century, though, so early you know nineteen hundreds my understanding is, so like is years later or so yeah, my understanding mm-hmm. is that Abby and Emma have a falling out, and it's probably because Emma suspects I would imagine that Lizzie did kill their parents, and um they don't see each other again ever again. After um, 1905, so you'd say probably about 12 years after the trial, they never see each other again. Wow. Lizzie remains unmarried, and she actually dies of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927. So there are there were a lot of there's a lot of suspicion around um, what why Lizzie wanted that money and she was selfish and all this, but despite the acquittal. She, she's left $30,000. I'm sorry. She leaves $30,000 the Fall River Animal Rescue League. Okay. She was a huge animal. And I think in the movie, they they kind of depict that with the pigeons. She's very protective yeah. over the pigeons. So she leaves mm-hmm. $30,000 to the Fall River Animal Rescue League, $500 in trust for the continuous care of her father's grave, which I thought was interesting, and $6,000 for her and cousin um which were substantial sums at the time of the estates distribution in 1927 so she leaves pretty much all of her money to charity animal animals yeah it doesn't sound like she
0: had any relationships after that Mm -hmm. and it sounds like the sister um suspected her and maybe believed that she did murder the family i think so
1: and in years, you know, since the murders, the trial and, and her death, the unsolved mystery of this axe that we'll get into in the trial, they're all just mm-hmm. huge, the popular urban legends. She's become this notorious celebrity in, in true crime, uh, especially with conspirators. So there's so many theories, pieces of information, new insights. So stuff still pours in, you know, there's a lot of stuff still there yeah. about her.
0: Well, yeah, the ones the ones that end in acquittal and no confession, then we have to solve them 25 different ways, right, over the last hundred years, yeah. more than hundred years. And, and
1: such a brutal death for a, a young woman. yeah, you know, brutal murder, yes. I should say, of, of a young woman. It's
0: unique. It's unique. I mean, it was unique. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. I don't know how unique it is now, but it was unique then, for sure. Um, yeah. And I know that. I know that the next section, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the um, kind of the fictionalization or adaptation or a version of this story that was done in the 2018 movie *Lizzie* mm-hmm. with Chloe Sevign- Sevigny. Is that how you pronounce? Sevigny, it?
1: I believe. Yeah. I just yeah. want to say and one Christ- thing before so- we end this. So I think this is kind of a cool uh, end the sections kind of a cool note. If anyone just does, does go visit the house is the woman who owns the house now says that um, there's there's some kind of eerie energy, clearly. She said, some guests and staff members have reported that they have heard strange noises and voices of a woman crying. Others have heard the sounds of footsteps going up and down the stairs. I'd love to hear if anyone's ever visited this house.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If any of you have visited the house, we want to hear from you. Yeah. <laughs> we want the ghost stories, man. Um, it sounds great. Massachusetts, we'll have to... We'll have to put it on the show notes, like where it is. Um, So we'll be right back. We're going to do one more section of this where we talk about the movie. And then we'll be out of here. So uh, just give us one
1: sec. We'll be right back. Okay, so we're back. And we're actually going to talk about um, the 2018 film, Lizzie, uh, with Chloe Sevigny and Kristen Stewart. Mm -hmm. Did you like this movie? you know originally so
0: again i know people probably get tired of hearing me say this but i saw this at the sundance festival oh god
1: just kidding that's where it
0: (laughs) premiered (laughs) so um i saw it super early and it actually i mean in the movie theater you know in that venue when you know nothing about a movie and you just sit down and you watch Mm -hmm. it i i really enjoyed it i Um, liked it and then of course it didn't come out for nine months or whatever. So you forget all about it. So I don't know uh, how audiences reacted to it in like regular movie settings. Mm -hmm. Um, I know it didn't make that much money. I know that, you know, it was a small release, like an art film release at first. And then it like extrapolated to, you know, 240 movie theaters and it didn't even make a million dollars, but I don't know. I really liked the performances I know people have different opinions about Chloe's performance, but I, I was riveted, I could say.
1: <laughs> I i liked it, and I think um, it helped that I read the, the book on the trial first before I saw yeah, it. Yeah, that you knew a bunch of the stuff. Well, I think it, because mm-hmm. it, it really painted her affect, her demeanor, and I think Chloe 70 did a really good job at, at portraying what we assume uh, Lizzie was right. like. And right. um, I, but it also should, what I appreciated about Chloe's performance is that it was not one dimensional, because I think sometimes when we take a character from history, it's really easy to just read information and then have this one dimensional character based on a series of facts. I think she made her human. And, you know, there's scenes where you know, the father's very abusive and you can see her empathy when he goes to kill the pigeons and that underneath this really um, tough facade is a really sad oppressed um, scared young woman yeah they make there's like a
0: couple of interpretations it's like they people responded to the performance you know as very very cold you know that she was either cold or sadistic or and I don't know I thought it was an excellent portrayal of the time to- or what we think of that's of right the time mm-hmm. Of being like controlled and penned in you know especially her stature with money and everything
1: you
0: know i don't know you know
1: she sat on this project for over a decade she really wanted to Um. understand and depict um the way that reflected the time and and the societal climate and i think she Mm -hmm. did a really like you were just saying does a really good job in painting the culture and privilege that liz grew up in but how the deprivation and rigidity of her upbringing didn't really allow her to enjoy any privileges um, right. and then it is sort of this it, the, the film takes a very modern feminist approach in the sense mm-hmm. that it paints lizzie and bridget as as victims um right. working together to escape like this oppressive prison and it is it's very raw without apology the scenes are very raw yeah that's what uh, that's what i
0: thought and and i think the de- some of the devices they use is like there's whole sections with no music yes. that kind of thing where that that gives us that sense of reality that sense of rawness mm-hmm. and and they but but they did their due diligence as far as like giving it a cinematic appeal you know there's mm-hmm. a lesbian affair mm-hmm. there's a there's um a horror the horrible uncle is cast as maybe someone who could have done it um the you know it's just, I, I don't know. I thought it was well done. I, I was, I guess maybe, I don't know if it was the marketing or whatever. I'm not going to get into all that. But just that sort of darker character-driven um, kind of movie, it just didn't it just didn't take off, I yeah. guess.
1: No, I agree. Kristen Stewart said something. This is a quote by Kristen Stewart. She said, you see women that see, seem really modern, self-possessed, and desirous of life people you can really relate to that are literally gagged and bound by their era and i thought she did a great job as bridget
0: she's a great actress i mean she really I think is it's but...
1: popular for people to make fun of her but i really always enjoy her performances
0: yeah no and she's been working really hard ever since the the twilight stuff it seems like she's been really working really hard to do quality movies i've seen her in a lot of Indie movies that you never see. Remember around. her as a
1: kid in Panic Room. She was great with Jodie Foster. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She does. You
0: know, there. It's been some movies like that were not necessarily great movies, but her performances were getting stronger and stronger. Lots of foreign stuff, and I don't know. I feel, I feel like over the last decade, she's worked really hard to to just do good work and be a good actress. You know? Yeah.
1: I think one of the things that I liked a lot about this movie too is it. We don't. In the literature, they don't really consider. They talk about the times, and they talk, but the way that they indicate potential physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, mm. um, and and there are there are scenes where um, it's it, it suggested that Andrew is sexually assaulting Bridget, and right. Abby knows about it, and she's like, you know, please stop. Basically, like, like right, let's, let's not do that yeah. anymore. Yeah. And, you know, the, but the women don't have a voice. And mm-hmm. both Lizzie and Bridget are oppressed. And and Lizzie's yeah. even sexually assaulted by her uncle in the movie, which at, at that time, it was very primitive mm-hmm. and primal. And I wouldn't rule that out as a possibility.
0: No, yeah, they assert several sort of narratives or theories around motivations for killing the dad, you mm-hmm. know, and for they really set up a theory of how she would have been driven to do that and the thing the different kinds of things that could have been going on um and and giving us kind of as an audience like palatable reasons to for her to kind of defend context and would have you know axed everybody to death Mm -hmm. um which of course makes a better movie um to give to give and, and also sort of in a defense of her in a way. And and I think that's an interesting cultural statement in and of itself is that if it's a female killer of a different time with all of these, you know, the stations in life is that as as moviegoers or as movie makers, we want to, we want to create a scenario where there's a really good reason why she like she was a victim, and it was a really good reason why she asked everybody exactly, death, you know, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to just being an axe murderer right you know?
1: well I, know. I, I even have this here in my notes it said um you know they they allude to bridget being assaulted by andrew if this is the case her murder is a revenge killing rather than an act by a psychopath so it, it, it depending right. on what story you feel comfortable believing in or what you know yeah. and then um this came straight out of the trial, but Chloe says it in the movie, which is great. And um, when they, they ask her on the stand, you know, Ms. Borden, do you have any enemies? And she says, this is America, sir. Anyone with a pulse has enemies. Oh and uh, it's just some of the stuff that she says on the stand and the way that she carries herself is quite surprising mm-hmm. and stoic. And, and that was unheard of for a woman at that time. Women were supposed to be hysterical and affected by everything.
0: Yeah, everything about her was unique. And, and it's interesting, because it, it's kind of, in a way, it's surprising, surprising that she wasn't found guilty. Her lawyers were obviously very good. Well, she had
1: because, the top, yeah, the top attorneys.
0: Yeah, her her personality could have definitely sunk her in that, in that day and time. Yeah. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to hearing about the trial and all that. I guess we're going to the whole episode next time is going to be the trial. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We're going to, we're going to not necessarily go in order, but I think we're just going to highlight the really important pieces of, um, and theories of maybe why she was acquitted, who these attorneys were, who some of the other suspects were and what led to her um, being acquitted.
0: That's amazing. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, So because we did, um, you know, a, a thicker episode a, a three-part episode we won't be doing our what the hell segment today but um we don't usually do them on the true crime episodes because they're a little bit longer fyi by way of explanation but um we will be back next week with the second part and i'm really looking forward to uh, the trial of lizzie borden yeah so thank you for listening we'll see you next week uh, this
1: is tarot talk my name is and i'm Shannon. kathy sleep safe everyone <laughs>
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.